Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. I'm Eric Felton. Bill, you're joining us from Colorado Springs, Broadmoor Hotel. You've escaped the fetid and miasmic air of the swamp in Washington, D.C. and traded it in for some nice crisp mountain air. What's going on there? I don't want to rub it in, Eric, but it's lovely out here. About 75 degrees right now, midday Friday. We're having our annual Weekly Standard Summit here at the Broadmoor, which is just a terrific hotel in Colorado Springs. And we've had the morning first. We had a nice reception last night and mix and mingle. And now the morning panels with Ben Sash joined us early on. He flew in very late. He wanted to go to the baseball game for obvious reasons. Last night, the congressional baseball game took a very late flight and I mean, literally seemed to have had two and a half hours of sleep. But he was great with Steve Hayes and We've been discussing the Trump presidency and the media, with Jonathan Last and uh, Steve and Fred Barnes and other colleagues and uh, friends from sister publications, Selena Zito from the Washington Examiner. So it's been great so far. I'm taking a little break here to do this, uh, and then we uh, get back, back get back to work. So it's it's tough work out here in this wonderful resort, 75 degrees, mountain air, nice people, the 250 of our friends and subscribers. But yeah, it's rough work, but someone has to do it. Well, I imagine one of the topics that will be on discussion this uh, during the the summit is was, of course, the attack this week by a gunman on Republicans practicing for the baseball game. What's your sense of how leaders have responded in Washington to that? You know, I think, and, and we wrote this in the editorial that Steve Hayes and I kind of collaborated on. I think it's under the name of the editors. Um, uh, that I actually I thought the response was 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 healthy. I mean, it's a horrible event. Obviously, just awful. Uh, and and we hope there are a couple of people still in obviously in the hospital and, and at real risk. And obviously, everyone hopes and prays that that they make it through. And and uh, that the only dead, dead person is the is the gunman who. Uh, but it was a terrible event. I think a reminder, though, that you know uh, there are things more important than the day to day political disputes. And I thought it was. People make fun of the political class, the people in Washington, members of Congress, you know, but it's healthy in Congress, as in any institution, to have a feeling of uh, camaraderie and, of course, respect and, and affection for one's colleagues, even if you disagree with them on most issues. And I thought it was nice to see people come together. The baseball game has always been a bit of a symbol of that, kind of getting away from the arguing on the floor and in committee and, and playing a, a good-natured game by a lot of people there who aren't probably quite as good as they were 20 years ago. Maybe they weren't great 20 years ago, but it's always been a nice kind of Washington type event. And I thought it was moving just from what I saw. I was already out here in Colorado, what I saw online about it last night. So I, I and I think President Trump's remarks were, were good. Speaker Ryan's, Bernie Sanders, the shooters, some kind of Bernie Sanders supporter. So Sanders, I thought, made appropriate uh, uh, brief remarks on the Senate floor uh, also on Wednesday. So it gave me some hope, actually, for for that our politicians can sort of rise to the occasion. You hate to have a shooting be, you know, the the, the reason they, they do. But may, maybe this will spill over a little bit into a more constructive attitude. What about the media response? People seemed a bit chastised and uh, people did report honestly on the political background of the gunman. But then you had the New York Times in an editorial rehashing the utterly discredited notion that Gabby Giffords had been shot by a gunman who was politically motivated. Yeah, that Times editorial was really extraordinary. I chose that you know, some of the media just can't, can't, you know, let it go for one day and, and just say, you know, report and 
and ask people not to, you know, condemn people for shooting other people and leave it at that. They have to resuscitate a discredited story, blaming Sarah Palin somehow for that. But um, but I thought the reaction to The Times was almost more interesting. I, we wrote about it, but so did everyone else, but not just conservatives. And The Times did apologize. It wasn't quite maybe the apology everyone was looking for, but they don't apologize for much. And it was a pretty straightforward acknowledgement that they were just wrong in that. Um, and that, that, that maybe also will have some healthy effect if people just realize they can't get away with uh, – repeating things that have been discredited one of the health you know people complain a lot about the internet about twitter about social media one of the good things about it is it does allow for this kind of instant fact checking you don't depend on the media to check themselves and i think this was a kind of a case where it almost organically there was a kind of massive cry of outrage uh, from social media and it forced the times to acknowledge that they had uh misrepresented what happened do you think there's any chance that uh, there's any long-term impact any long-term change in the tenor of Washington from the recognition that uh, that political rage can have consequences? You know, I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't think I think there could be long term change, medium term, short term. I suspect everything's so polarized. President Trump's a polarizing figure for reasons. Uh, some of them in it, it, that were are, were in our in his control. So many of them that aren't. Uh, the politics in general has become so polarized over the last decade, 15 years or so. Um, so I, I, I suspect that's going to continue for a bit. But I'm struck. I was struck before the shooting. And I talked about this with people. Maybe we even discussed it on a podcast. I can't remember. You talk to younger members, younger members of both parties, including quite people with strong views. And there's a kind of sense of, gee, I didn't want to get into politics to just come and scream and yell for 20 years and not accomplish anything. And look, it's a divided country, which means accomplishing things is going to mean some compromise. And it doesn't, it's maybe at times you're just going to have an up or down majority vote. That's fine too, but let's then have the up or down majority vote. Um, and then let's try to move ahead to do other things. But uh, especially, I think, some of the young veterans in both parties. Tom Cotton, uh, Mike Gallagher on the Republican side, Seth Moulton on the Democratic side, all people I know personally, friends of the Weekly Standard, readers of the Weekly Standard. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of wonder whether there isn't a bit of a reaction against, uh, you know, the, the, rea the, the, the Washington that these people have, have come to. This isn't what they signed up for, so to speak. Certainly not what they signed up for when they joined the military, but not even what they signed up for when they ran for office. That's not an easy or fun thing to do, basically. And they did it and they won and here they are and they're sort of in a total kind of gridlock, partisan, polarized gridlock. And I, I think there is a reaction brewing against it. I'm not sure what it and how exactly it manifests itself. Well, we have a Washington and not only which there is partisan gridlock, but there's also endless investigations going on. And uh, the news today on that was that Donald Trump tweeted this morning, quote, I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director, witch hunt, end quote. What do you make of the latest tweet? I mean, in general, I just think he gains nothing from fighting this fight. He antagonizes some people probably in, in the FBI who, or the Justice Department. Uh, he's not making his case, really, as based, I guess, as some of it is, which thinks he's being unfairly persecuted, which he may be to some degree, you know, feels, oh, he's really being unfairly, you know, this is good that he's speaking up about being unfairly persecuted, but the investigation is going on. I mean, it's not going to stop. Um, and so the best thing for Donald Trump 
is for it to go on as quickly as possible and for him to be cleared if that's what's going to happen and for the truth to come out, as he himself has said, some people who are sort of satellites, the way I think he put it of his, and might, might get implicated in having done something wrong either in the campaign or subsequently, and maybe he will be. We just don't know. So I, I think it's a foolish fight for him to pick, honestly. I don't, you know, I think, I think it'll be a... I think people trust the Federal Bureau of Investigation to do a pretty honest investigation. They trust our intelligence community, uh, not every single person in it, but generally speaking, to be uh, serving the country. I think to the degree Trump has positioned himself as hostile, not just to certain individual leaders, but almost to the whole institutions, I think it's foolish of him. And I don't think it's really good for the country and good for a president to do that. So, uh, But it's happening. The truth is it's not a PR game. He could have a clever tweet one day, a stupid tweet the next. It doesn't matter. There's going to be an investigation. It's in the country's interest that it gets done as quickly as possible. And I think we'll learn. We'll learn what people did on the campaign and didn't do. We'll learn exactly what happened and pretty much what happened in these in the White House under President Trump and whether he really he obviously was very upset about this investigation. Was he upset because he's innocent and it's just a cloud over his presidency and it's making life dif- difficult for him? Well, usually if you're upset about that, you sort of say, I'm upset about that. And then you go about your business and govern successfully and just figure, look, if I'm innocent, it's gonna, I'll, I'll be clear at some point. Uh, or is he upset because there are things he knows about or worries that he knows about or might have not distanced himself from enough? Um, or things he did foolishly when he first took over as president, having the one-on-one dinner with James Comey, uh, that you know he's worried that where they're pulling on those threads will threads will lead, and if that's why he's worried, then he's worried about the actual investigation. But again, it doesn't do much good to complain about it, you know. So I, I think it's foolish of him, honestly, and I I I think it's um, not helping him. I just know from talking to Republican members of Congress. Uh, you know, these investigations can go on beneath the radar for quite a while. They are, I'm sure, the people are being deposed, interrogated, and so forth. But meanwhile, if, if he's fighting with the FBI and CIA, if you look at his approval ratings, it's not helping him. It's not helping him get his legislative agenda through. And I, I think it's um, so I think it's doing some damage to the Trump presidency. Now, as the investigation, as we've heard this week through leaks, is moving into questioning the firing of James Comey, there's talk that Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, might recuse himself because, of course, he was involved in the firing of James Comey in writing a memo uh, laying out the reasons to fire James Comey. If he recuses himself, then Rachel Brand, the number three at justice, would be in charge of overseeing uh, the investigation of the special counsel. At what point do you get where there's no one with any sort of political accountability toward the investigation? Yeah, it's a little weird. It's it's an unusual situation. Rachel Brand is confirmed by the Senate, on the other hand, and well-respected and served in the Bush Justice Department, and I think prior to that in Justice Departments. And so I don't have a real problem. You know, I don't think that that doesn't strike me as uh, a huge problem. Uh, uh, It's a little unusual. And obviously, Mueller, who's conducting the investigation, was FBI director for, what, 12 years. So, I mean, it's not as if we don't have senior people here. And and there'll be plenty of scrutiny of what, what Mueller does. So I'm not too worried about that. And uh, again, I think it's in the interests of uh, the president. Uh, I mean, maybe Rosenstein should. I don't even know whether he should recuse himself or not. Sometimes we bend over too far backwards with these recusals. I do think the Sessions recusal early on, which apparently is what infuriated Trump, was a big moment where they kind of lost political control if they ever had it of the investigation, whether they should have it's another question also. But but that was, you know, Sessions is a Trump loyalist in the way that Rosenstein and Brand aren't. And to the degree that that happened, 
that itself was due, of course, to stories that came out from the campaign. And maybe, again, maybe Sessions should have resisted the pressure. But I think there was a lot of pressure on him. And and uh, once he made that decision, I think we kind of that, that, that's what led one thing led to another. Uh, and here we are. It's just amazing. Five months into his presidency with a pretty serious investigation going on. And I think one of the big myths is, you know, we'll never know. As he said, she said, take forever. I don't buy that. I mean, when these when you get a serious investigation like this and people start getting interrogated before grand juries or at least under oath by the FBI or even not under oath by the FBI, uh, a lot of stuff gets learned and there are contemporaneous records and there'll be issues of executive privilege and privacy. But still, um, I think we will find out you know, in six or 12, but certainly within 12 months, and I would say probably more like six or nine months, kind of what pretty much what happened in the campaign to the degree we could ever find out if anything did, and pretty much what happened in the Trump White House to the degree we can, you know, that, that there's a clear answer to that. Once we've gotten to that point, we're going to be looking at the next election cycle. And um, Fred Barnes writing in the magazine this week is talking about how sort of Whatever happens with the special counsel's investigation, chances are that if Democrats take the House, there will be a lot of pressure for uh, Democrats to start moving with impeachment proceedings any way you look at it, and that uh, the political fortunes of Republicans in the House of Representatives is going to be determinative of what happens to Donald Trump. Yeah, I'm not sure that's right in the sense that, obviously, there's a lot of truth to what Fred's writing there, but... I mean, I would say this, if Mueller concludes there was no criminal offense by the president, no, uh, nothing he wants to refer to the Congress for action, uh, and, you know, various other things, people might have done some things wrong, but Trump didn't know about it, I think that would make it hard for the Democrats. They might do well in the 2018 elections anyway, because Trump isn't doing a good job as president or because it's a normal off-year election, but that would be pretty hard to then say, well, Robert Mueller and his whole team have concluded this, but we're going to go ahead with impeachment anyway. Conversely, Honestly, if he finds, you know, serious impeachable offenses or something that rises to a kind of impeachable offense, I'm not sure a Republican House saves Trump. So I actually think Mueller is the key player. I mean, we talk a lot about politics and elections. We talk a ton about the media. Uh, those are they're both very important players in this. But at the end of the day, once you have this kind of legal investigation, I think that because and that's something we're not going to know. I mean, people say on the one side, the pro-Trump side, you know, it's been going for six or seven months. I think Trump said this in a tweet this morning, you know, and nothing's come out. Well, how do we know what's come out? I mean, we don't know. We don't know what Michael Flynn has said under oath. We don't know what Paul Manafort has said under oath. We don't know what Rob Rosenstein's going to say when asked, well, did you really advise Trump to do this because Mueller wasn't a good FBI director? Or were you just, did Trump say it's all about Russia? I just want this investigation ended. Did you ask him why? Maybe he did say, you know, so you just don't, we don't know at this point. Uh, I think the investigation is the most important thing. Well, one other political thing that happened this week, that was the primary in Virginia for the governor's uh, house. And uh, how did that play out? Yeah, that was, I lived in Virginia and I took a Republican. In Virginia, you don't, there's no party registration. You show up and you ask for a ballot from either party. So in a way, it's more reflective probably of the strength. It's a pretty evenly divided state. And my area is fairly evenly divided, a little Democratic, but we have a Republican congresswoman. So it's fairly reflective, I think, when to see, well, who asks how many ballots of each party are asked for. Now, there were competitive races in both parties. The irony is people thought the Democratic race for governor was more competitive, but it turns out the Republican one was much closer. But it's really startling. It's statewide. About 50 percent more Virginians asked for a Democratic ballot than a Republican ballot. Um, and the Democrat won by about 10 points, Northam, and Gillespie only won by a point and a half. 
over what was regarded as a pretty uh, unlikely you know, person to give him that serious a challenge. So I just think looking at it analytically in that way, it's, it was a good night for the Democrats. It doesn't mean that Gillespie couldn't come back. And so now we have a long campaign. There's a history, actually, of these campaigns being quite volatile. I remember back in 93, George Allen was down by 20 points and won. And I think in 2009, McDonald was down and then won. So, you know, voters will change their minds as they see both candidates now. It becomes much more about the candidates and less of kind of general, which party do I like or what have I vaguely heard? But I Gillespie's certainly starting off behind. And that's a race that I think people would have said six months ago, Republicans would have had a good shot at uh, uh, winning. So I, I mildly negative, I'd say, uh, prognosis if you're a Republican from Tuesday's results. And how much is Ed Gillespie going to be dragging Donald Trump around with him during this election? Not much. I think Virginia is not a good Trump state, certainly not northern Virginia, which is a large, you know, a lot of voters and a swing part of the state. I think Trump's pretty popular, probably down in southwest Virginia. And presumably those votes, some of which were many of which were cast for Gillespie's opponent, Stewart will now come back home, so to speak, to Gillespie. But he needs some of those swing voters in northern Virginia. I think Hillary Clinton carried the state by about three, three and a half percent over Trump. So the easiest way to look at it is to say that Gillespie has to do a little better than Trump in Virginia to win. So is is Gillespie in a tricky position, though, where he, he can't repudiate Trump and get the Republican votes he needs from southwest Virginia, but he can't embrace Trump and win the, any votes that he needs in northern Virginia? Yes, it's tricky. Now, he has the advantage that he's running for governor, not senator. So he's not going to be voting on Trump one way or the other. He doesn't have to vote for Trump's legislative agenda. He certainly would never have to vote on impeachment if it came to that on conviction. You know, as a senator, he's going to be governor of Virginia. So I think what you'll see, Gillespie's a smart politician. Uh, I think he'd be a good governor personally. But, you know, I think what you'll see is him very much trying to focus on what he would do as governor as opposed to the Democrat. Well, Bill, enjoy the clean mountain air at the Broadmoor, and thanks for joining us on the Crystal Clear podcast today. Thanks, Eric. Be sure to tune in every week to the Crystal Clear podcast. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription, or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. I'm Eric Felton. Thanks for listening.